0: To the Freedom Pact. Okay, so joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today for his third, I believe, appearance on the show is one of my favorite authors, Ben Aldridge. Ben, welcome back to the show again.
1: Hiya, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, it's great to be here.
0: Okay, so today we're going to be talking about your new book that's just come out, How to Control the Uncontrollable. Um, and when my friend Joe came round to my house recently, I had this on the table downstairs and I, he picked it up and he said, that may be the best title to any book I've ever read. <laughs> he was obsessed with the title of the book. So where did that title come from?
1: So the, the title is based on one of the core ideas in the book, which is that we can't like, how, how do we deal with chaos and things that are outside of our control? And this is this is what I call the golden rule in Stoicism. The whole book is based on Stoicism. So it's really kind of a play on that and the control uncontrollable. There's a little bit of a mirror to my first book, which is how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's one of those things where the title feels a bit awkward to say, and it's, it's actually quite there's uh, you have to think about it a bit. So that's really how it came about. And it represents one of the core ideas from Stoicism. So I feel that that's uh, that's a great kind of way to um, explain that that so that philosophy really.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a quote you use uh, right at the start of the book. I think it was Seneca. So it's the more we value things outside our control, the less control we have. Which I'm sure if anyone's familiar with Stoic philosophy, they're familiar with this idea about you know not stressing over the uncontrollable. But I've always wondered to what extent we can actually follow that rule because in theory it's a pretty easy thing but in reality it's very
1: very hard oh yeah absolutely in theory it's it's a beautiful idea (laughs) but then when something happens and you have to actually handle it or you have to deal with things outside of your control in a in a a graceful way it's it's a lot harder It's, it's when you have to do the you know the the uh, the action the the thing you know that that's where it's it's challenging
0: so this book's based around 10 principles so where did where did those principles come from before we dive into uh, each one and talk to uh, talk about them a little bit
1: yeah so all of this is on uh, stoicism and these 10 principles in the book are my favorite ideas from the philosophy and it's been a fun process because i've had to Kind of look at all of this philosophy and and kind of synthesize it and pick ideas that resonated with me and try and sort of capture the themes within the philosophy. So these are my 10 favorite principles and I've uh, created little challenges around them so people can actually start testing out these ideas in the real world.
0: Amazing. So I wanted to get into to each of the principles, if, if time allows us. But, but before that, there was one thing that stuck out to me. Um, I think it was in the introduction. Can you tell us what the anti-bucket list is and how and why we should use it?
1: So the anti-bucket list, this is, this is a fun idea. Um, and we all know what a bucket list is. This is the idea that you have a list of things you want to do before you die maybe it's Vegas, maybe it's the Northern Lights, I mean we're all different, we all have things that we want to do. Uh, The anti-bucket list is the opposite of that, it's all the things that we would rather not have to do and we can avoid it. As adults it's very easy for us to avoid things that frighten us or things that we don't want to do. So the whole purpose of this list is to create a set of things that scare us and that challenge us and, and to actively seek them out and through this process of attacking those fears and those things that scare us uh, we can grow a lot we can learn about who we are Uh, to give you an example like for me had a huge fear of needles so needles went on my anti-bucket list and then i turned that into a a challenge so i went and had acupuncture which was uh, intense (laughs) the first time i went i found it really really difficult because they put needles absolutely everywhere (laughs) in your face and your legs and stomach everywhere and That whole process, the the more you do it, the more you expose yourself to the things that you're afraid of, the better you get at being in that situation. So that's really the purpose of the anti-bucket list. And it's interesting because everyone's anti-bucket list is going to look different. And it's this combination of fear and play, which are two words that you don't normally associate with each other. And I think that we can have some profound insight into the way that our minds work and, and how we handle challenge when we start looking at those things so that, i think the anti bucket list is it's kind of like fear exposure which is used in therapy so we can uh, we can use it to great benefit
0: so these principles i wanted to to talk about them but sort of relate them to, to your own personal story because you mentioned at the start of the book that in your experience, you had quite debilitating anxiety issues. So I wanted to relate these principles um and tie them into your personal story to see how they to see how they've benefited you firsthand. So the first principle is voluntary discomfort. Um and one of the ways in which I've seen you do that recently, if anyone follows you on Instagram, I think it's at Two Things That Challenge You. It's this you take a banana for a walk. <laughs> that might sound That's strange to anyone who you know, hasn't seen this or, or read the book, but the best way I can describe it is so you have a banana attached to a piece of string attached to you, and you're just walking through the middle of the street with a banana following you everywhere you go. Um, and I think in the book, I, I would attribute this to, I don't know, shame attacking, I think, was the the um, the way you described these type of exercises. So from your honest experience speaking as someone who had you know debilitating anxiety someone who would never have have wanted to draw attention to themselves i imagine what did this sort of exercise bring out of you and and do for you
1: so this particular exercise is very interesting because it's all about what's going on in your head it's not a physical challenge it's not something that's like it's not painful to do it's only it's mentally uncomfortable and I think that's what's so fascinating about it. Not, you know, you take this, like you could, I mean you do it with a vegetable, it doesn't have to be a banana, it can be anything, but it's that point of making yourself feel uncomfortable in public. And the thing is, a lot of people won't even notice. But some people do, some people point at you, they'll laugh at you. But it's how do you process that? How do you manage that judgment? And how do you handle being judged by others? So this is very much an internal thing. And that's why I think it's it's good to highlight this and to challenge it i certainly would have found this exercise difficult uh, more difficult in the past when i was in a very anxious space but actually this is something that is used in modern therapy to help people with uh, social anxiety because it's this this you step outside your comfort zone you start pushing yourself and this is this was created by albert ellis and this is part of he, he created rational emotive behavior therapy which is actually something that helps people to deal with social anxiety and yeah this this is his exercise so it's been fun to play around with it but this would have great um effect this would have a great effect on his uh, patients and help them to overcome that sense of being judged by others and it's just that exposure thing the more you do it the better you get at it you might have to go for a very long walk with a banana until you eventually stop caring what people think But that's, uh, that's the purpose of it. And actually, there's a nice little tie here with Stoicism, because um, Albert Ellis, who created this exercise, he was a big fan of the Stoics. And we know that the Stoics would do similar things, they would deliberately embarrass themselves. There's a Stoic called Cato, who would wear the wrong clothes, the wrong colours, and turn up to meetings so that people would laugh at him, and he could practice overcoming that shame. So I really like that idea. And I think that is something that is is difficult for us to do we don't like feeling foolish we don't like being embarrassed so it's it's very uh powerful to put yourself in that situation where you you deliberately are being stupid
0: (laughs) yeah it was this particular act it gripped me because with some as someone with um anxiety issues especially social anxiety issues all my life seeing Someone like yourself who had a similar experience be able to do something like that. I personally can't fathom how you got to that place. So I, I to me, I, maybe I can't do that yet, but I'd love to be able to get there. On this walk, do you remember? Was there a particular moment? Was there a particular location where you felt you most embarrassed that you can remember?
1: Well, actually, like this, this walk in particular wasn't. It was, it was quite intense, but it wasn't as bad as one of the other things that I did in this sort of similar style, which is uh, going for a backwards walk. And I'll tell you why that's so much more embarrassing. I did, um, in central London, there's a park called Hyde Park, massive park. uh, And I walked backwards through the whole of Hyde Park. I was just on my own. There was no one else around. So this wasn't like filmed for anything. So there's no safety net of having, you know, the camaraderie of someone else there with you. And I walked backwards through the whole park and it's it was so embarrassing because everyone is walking faster than you. You can't walk very fast backwards. So they connect to your eye with your (laughs) eyes. There's eye contact for a long time. And as they're slowly, like, you know, you're walking slowly and they're catching up with you. It's just, I don't know. I found that incredibly embarrassing because there's, yeah, there's, at least when you're walking forward, you can kind of keep your eyes, you know, facing forward and just kind of get on with it. Uh, whereas walking backwards that was really really intense Uh, but i found that really interesting because no one said anything at all Mm. no one even no one really batted an eyelid but it's what's going on in your mind and that's what's so fascinating about this exercise and i think anyone who's listening to this they could just try this exercise take a banana for a walk or or go for a backwards walk in a, a busy public place and pay attention to how your mind works because that's that's really the key thing here and it's something that I think warrants exploration. It's, it's really interesting. Why is it that we get so caught up in our own heads? So I don't know. I, I think it's <laughs> it's a fun it's a fun exercise to test out.
0: Amazing. Well, so principle two is perception. Um, again, you mentioned that you had anxiety, panic attacks, and again, as, as someone who's experienced those things, how did you or how have you managed? this ongoing i imagine um ongoing struggle with with shifting your perception and to combat that anxiety what is your perception journey look like
1: so really this is all about the way that i talk to myself in my head and i think that journey has been uh it, it's it's been a big journey because when i was incredibly anxious i could tell you now my internal dialogue was <laughs> horrific I, it was really, really bad. I was very, very negative the way that I viewed everything and everything was kind of, you know, on the edge of being a disaster. And it's, uh, it's a difficult place to be when you think like that. But actually, the great thing is that you can change that. There's a lot of modern therapies that are related to stoicism as well. And this is kind of, again, the connection here is that in modern therapy, we talk about things like CBT and how to challenge your own thinking. And all of this is inspired by the Stoics as well. Uh, and the stoicism is heavily influenced by logic and reasoning so it's all about using using this uh, this approach to your thoughts and, and the way that you speak to yourself so that shifted for me over time and it's a gradual thing it doesn't happen overnight you don't just suddenly wake up and you're like oh you know my mind has changed it's it's a gradual process but slowly over time I've Uh, I've definitely changed the way that I talk to myself and I can slip back and I can hear sort of negative patterns, but I guess I'm aware of that. So I now have techniques in place to just kind of challenge that, you know, you're not everything that you think and that's an important uh, part of it. I think we need to be aware of that and that we can sort of push back against the thoughts that uh, enter our mind.
0: So moving on, So I think the next one is setbacks. And I wanted to talk about this one um, because recently I've experienced this firsthand and I can relate this to the podcast. So um, a couple of months ago I was offered to travel to Westminster to interview Matt Hancock, uh, the former health secretary. Um, It's no secret. I'm, I'm no fan of the, of the Tory party. I'll be honest, but I saw it as an opportunity to, to try and have a conversation that could have a positive outcome or, and again, this was brand new. I'd never done an interview in person. It was a good opportunity. And there were so many things that I set out to achieve with that interview. Um, And when I got there, I was, I came away severely disappointed with the interview for a number of reasons. Um, And I remember me and my podcast partner, we were, we was sat in London having food afterwards and we just had this sort of adrenaline dump and we were really disappointed with how it turned out and we thought we'd you know it was a bit of a mistake and then over the the next couple of months when we we put it out and we had time to reflect and it's it's actually taught me so many things of how I want to run this podcast or how I want to conduct interviews or how I want to liaise professionally with PAs has taught me so many different things from that experience. So although I look back on it and think it was a bit of a failed experiment as to what I wanted to achieve, the lessons I've I've learned from that now and I'm implementing on a daily basis when, when running this podcast are probably quite invaluable. So I'm a true believer in setbacks being an important thing, but I wanted to, to, to ask you, what is one of your biggest setbacks that your mind goes straight to when I ask you this question and what did you take away
1: from it? So I think that's it really. It's how you frame it because we're all going to face setbacks. It's an inevitability of being a human being. Um, but it's how we treat that and we can we can make difficult experiences have value by looking for lessons. And yeah, I think for me, the biggest Setback in a way was probably experiencing the terrible anxiety uh, because at the time it didn't feel like it was something that I, I wanted to be going through. It was a really scary experience. It felt like an absolute disaster, and it felt like my mind had sort of just gone, like completely crumbled. So I think to come back from that to see actually this is something that you can learn to manage, and you can you can change the way you think and this is actually something that you know in hindsight now i look back on that experience and i wouldn't change it i wouldn't change it if i if i could because i actually think i took i took so much from it i got into loads of different philosophy and philosophies and psychology and all these different things and started writing off the back of it so i wouldn't be here chatting to you if it wasn't for that so i think it's like you never know what these setbacks can lead us on so it's it's all about how we frame it but also knowing that it might feel like it's it's not going well or something bad has happened but in hindsight when we look back it's actually it's it can have extreme value and actually that was a very profound experience for me going through all of that Uh, but it taught me so much that I will never forget off the back of it so yeah that's that's the first thing my mind always goes back to that because that was such a big thing in my life but obviously there's there's tons of other things that I can think of but yeah that's that's the one the beacon i guess when i look back over the, over my life
0: yeah and it's hard i as well i find because if you if you experience a setback and and someone says you can learn from it and at the time you feel like there you know there's nothing positive you can pull out of it 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 seems overwhelmingly negative but maybe it's not maybe until months even years down the line you know maybe you're you're reflecting on the past maybe you're in therapy and something just triggers you to think back and then you start realizing the the lessons and the good that came out of setbacks. But at the time it's really hard to actually see the positives in a setback when you're still in the midst of the aftermath.
1: Absolutely. All of this is so much easier to talk about yeah. than to actually, you know, that's it with everything. Uh, so yeah, you're right. It's It's hard to see it when you're in it, when you're in it.
0: So, that leads perfectly into the next principle, which is self-reflection. Um, something I've tried to do a, a lot over the years and that many um, guests have talked about in terms of a daily journaling being a positive thing. And, and I've always struggled with building that into a routine or being able to reflect on a regular basis. I get highly motivated I'll spend 20 minutes a day reflecting for maybe a week and then all of a sudden weeks will go by where I've just forgotten and I and, and I think a lot of people have a similar experience so what advice would you give on self-reflection even for those people who struggle to make it an actual physical process like journaling for example what about people that struggle
1: with that? Well, I think the idea with that is to set the bar really low. Uh, so I think it, it's deciding what's going to be the most effective thing for you as an individual. I find like journaling is really useful for me, but it's it's quite, it's very short. My routine to kind of think and to reflect on everything that's been happening to me is short. So if it's short, it's achievable. And you can do this thing where you stack habits on top of each other. So if you, if you get into that routine, you can kind of program yourself to be consistent so i think having a very low like set the bar really low so that it's hard to fail and you know even if it's something let's say you are you know it for instance if you're learning a new skill or something just like 10 minutes 10 minutes a day or something even though you might end up doing more than that or with the journaling thing you might end up journaling for more than just say like three points If, if you start off with just saying okay what are the three takeaways from the day if it's really really simple to do you'll probably end up doing a little bit more than that, but you know that it's achievable. And even if you're in a rush, often you can be able to find 10 minutes to learn a new skill, or you can like three takeaways from the day, you know, you can reflect very easily on that. You could do that um, in no time at all. So I think having that low (laughs) set the bar low uh, and then you, you're almost guaranteed to do it. And and also knowing that you probably at some point will fall off the horse, but you've got to get back on the horse. (laughs) So it's just kind of, yeah, accepting that's that's how it is. It's hard to be completely on it every single day. And I think, you know, that's something that I find difficult. If I stop doing something for a day, um, it's getting back on and making sure that it's not like, oh, that's it then, you know. I get you very kind of obsessed with having a chain of things. Oh, it's my streak. And then when you break the streak, it's okay. You just have to start it again. And I think that's that's worth holding on to. And that's something that I keep, you know, having to tell myself.
0: Yeah, and it's an undeniably um, powerful process is, is self-reflection. I think a lot of people uh, forget that meditations was never meant, uh, sorry, meditations by Mark Aurelius was never meant to be read by anyone else. It was essentially just his own private journal of his thoughts to himself. Like He never intended for anyone to hear that and it's gone on to be such a powerful and and influential book.
1: Yeah, and that's it. I think he he wrote that for himself, didn't he? And it's uh, just as a way to ensure that he was living in alignment with the philosophy that was important to him. So I think that's really why we're doing all this and and why self-reflection is important. And yeah, journaling seems to be a great way to do that.
0: Just something you picked up on there before we move on to the next principle you talked about you know um falling off the horse and getting back on I wonder for someone like yourself who's um, written two books uh, you published a, a a deck of cards these projects that must take so much time and effort what is your practice for resilience when you know there's something you need to get done when you know there's a deadline maybe how do you stay on course do you set yourself many deadlines do you block out a specific hour in the day where you dedicate to to writing what is your your process like to making sure that you don't just dabble here and there and maybe don't put the effort in that that the project deserves
1: i guess it's it's interesting because for me the writing comes in cycles Like, like there's a creation process which i kind of get very absorbed in so I'll end up just having these big days of writing and just, I tend to write very intensely. Uh, I'm not someone who just does like two hours a day, every day to create a project. I'll just almost go in until I've I've reached a sort of natural time to maybe have a break. So I'd, I'd work on a huge section and try and do like ridiculously long days because I quite, I quite like that. I feel like I get into the rhythm with it. Um, and it's just knowing that the energy will change and just having that sort of end point. I think the first book was so much harder to write because it's the first time I'd ever created a project like that. And it was this, you, you write the book once and then you've got to tweak it and then sort of rewrote it again. And then there's the, the process of getting a, a literary agent and then getting it to a publisher. And then there's the edits at that point. And then it's like rewriting, rewriting. So it, it was created so many... I ended up writing that book so many times and it was um, sort of chipping away at it. Whereas this, these other projects have been a bit more structured to begin with. So I can see the sort of end point and having deadlines right from the start with the publisher. Um, I think in a way having that deadline helps because when you don't have a, a hard deadline of, yeah, this is going to press or this is, this needs to be like final, like final draft of the manuscript is in this day, mm. Uh, when you don't have that, it's kind of hard because you've got to set it yourself. So with my first book, it was just, it took a long time because there was no hard deadline in a way. And that could kind of go on forever. So I think it's quite important to have something to work towards, uh, like a real cutoff point. Um, so I think that's, that's something that definitely helps motivate me because I know that I, I, it's got to be in by that point. Um, so yeah, having, having some kind of like self-imposed deadline or, or knowing that you've got to work towards something certainly helps me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that could be applied to lots of different things.
0: Yeah. Books in particular fascinate me with how they come together. Um, I think a lot lot of people see the, the, the finished product and they don't maybe understand what, what goes into it for your latest book. Then this one that we're talking about today, how long a process was that from maybe the initial idea to publication day? How long did that process take?
1: so that was i think that was quite quick it was a year and a half wow it was just under a year and a half but the thing is you know it went i'd finished the book in maybe like eight months before it actually came out so then it goes to the publishers and then there's all loads of different things that happen behind the scenes and then uh so yeah it does take a long time but the actual writing process it was yeah it was probably about eight months to write as well but it was it was done in a different way creating the structure first and and it felt like i was very organized with it it felt like a really nice project to work on and um the structure for creating that structure first and then working backwards was really nice knowing exactly what i'm doing how i'm writing it and creating that first really yeah really made a difference i think
0: and maybe this question in the context of your first book but when you were you were writing, and maybe you woke up on a day where you planned to write and you you really didn't feel like it, maybe you were you were tired, maybe you'd had a a big night the night before I don't know, but on those days where you don't feel like getting up and and getting at that grind, I wonder for you what was it that made you get on with it, especially when you didn't have a deadline because I think for me, I always think it's important to have a, 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 you know, a a why or a, or a motive behind everything, something to act as that sort of backup engine, something that's ticking over in the back of your mind all the time, uh, uh, a purpose. What was it for you that when you woke up and you, you really didn't feel like it, what made you push on?
1: I think, do you know what I have to say? there, There were days that were obviously harder, kind of like wading through treacle with the project, but, I guess knowing that there's an end point to it is something that I find really motivating. Knowing that at the end, you've got this product, you've got this thing. I say product sounds a bit kind of salesy. I don't mean it like that. I mean, Mm. something that you've created that it's like you've finished it uh, and it's there and it's this creation and there's an end point. I think that end goal is something that motivates me because then it's like that project's there and then you can move on to a different thing. Uh, whereas a lot of the things that I've been doing previously to writing have been the development of skills and stuff like that, which is almost like there's there's no end to that. You can just continue to get better and better. And obviously, you can as a writer, but I think having a project, having something there's like a finishing point, There's like you've created that, there's something very nice about that. I find that motivating, and obviously, there are days which are difficult, but I think it's seeing the bigger purpose of the project and knowing that, you know... I, I just like creating that, creating things. And then you get into a, a flow, even on a difficult day. It's like, I find that after about an hour of wading through treacle, you start to make progress. And then then eventually, you know, you start to start to, things start to move in the right direction. And then it feels good. And then you blink and it's like, oh, there's six hours have just gone by. So I find that the process of writing, I love it so much that you can't, I just tend to get so absorbed in it um so yeah it does it's yeah it's interesting it's very interesting
0: fantastic so back to the the principles i think we're on the number five role models um this was something that i first started taking seriously i read a book by russell brand called mentors um and it it, again it was on the importance of, of having mentors but not specifically mentors that were actually there you know, that you could speak to, but the fact that you could have these role models that would serve as mentors. So, you know, if you pick up a book by one of your favorite authors, they're essentially your mentor in a way. And it got me thinking about my role models. And I wanted to pose the question to you as to who's, who your uh, role models were, but you also talk about anti role models, which (laughs) I find on the surface, there's multiple you could think of, but when you, really niche it down um then it becomes difficult so who are your role models and maybe some anti role models if you
1: wouldn't mind sharing those (laughs) yeah of course so role models tend to be i i find that there's there's a lot of there's a real mix to be honest lots of friends and family members and my wife is incredibly stoic she's she's like she's just a natural stoic Like i have mm-hmm. to really work hard to to do all of this i guess that's why i'm so interested in like reading about resilience and creating projects built like based on resilience which is something that i want to be better at but she's just naturally <laughs> very resilient she just does it like, it's just who she is and so i find that you know she's uh, she's definitely a role model i look at the way that she Handles things very difficult things, and it's it's always super inspiring. Um, and she's very supportive for me and for many of her friends as well. So I guess that's something that I I feel lucky that I get to have a role model that I'm so close to. Um, and then obviously there's lots of other family members and lots of friends and lots of writers. I tend to just I feel like every time I read a book, then that in a way if if I connect to it, then they almost become a little role model. And maybe it's for a specific thing. You know, it's not like they're this, I guess there's this, uh, you know, there's the confusion. It's not like a role model doesn't have to be someone that you worship. It's not like a, mm. you know, an idol that you you think this, uh, they're like a celebrity that you're obsessed with. It's more of a, someone who has a, a characteristic or something that you admire. And I find that there'll be certain aspects of different people that I like and I borrow. You know, some of my friends are, there's a particular thing that they're really, i'm inspired by a particular thing that they do so it's yeah it's broad uh, and interesting to to see all these different sources i think with the anti role models it's interesting as well because i mean there's so many people out there who <laughs> fit the bill just to say there's so many people but it's it's also interesting to look at you know the small things like when someone does someone who like a perfectly decent person might do something like slightly slightly mean and they might not even be thinking about it so i mean a good example is say you're driving and someone just won't let you out when it's they, like they, or they're just not being not there They cut you up or there's something and the thing is we can take that aspect of their behavior and turn that into that that particular event can be like an anti-role model thing so you can see that and you can say i don't want to be like that mm-hmm. so just because someone has done something i don't have to emulate that And Marcus Aurelius says the best revenge is to not be like your enemy, which I think is a really nice way of looking at it. If someone's awful to you, you don't have to stoop to their level. And that's very much, you know, a a core theme in Stoicism. It's not getting dragged down by all these people. So it's seeing the anti-role models out there, the people who are behaving poorly, and we don't have to behave like them. We can see what they do and we can avoid that. We can kind of, look at their behavior and we don't have to copy it and um, we can use it as a beacon for not for what not to do uh, i think that's a that's a good way of of kind of turning someone who's done something terrible into a into something constructive mm. um, i think that's the best way of doing it
0: <laughs> yeah it's cool i love this idea of trying to you know figure out the the person you want to be um and again with the anti-role model thing at first thought you think there's millions. i mean you could just throw Hitler out there is a pretty obvious one, right, but then when you niche it down, obviously, and I think to myself, I was thinking earlier when I was flicking through the book I was thinking of the podcast game, and there's certainly a couple of anti role models in the the world of podcasting that that i was that I was looking to 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 help me figure out what kind of podcast I want to be and certainly what kind i don't want to be um and it, it reminded me of this um. Process that we had uh General Stanley McChrystal on the podcast going back a year or so ago. Um, he were he led the team that captured Saddam Hussein. And he was talking about this idea of writing your own obituary. Because when you write your own obituary, you're not writing about all the things you achieved in life. So you're not saying Lewis was a a great guy he had a million youtube subscribers he had a, a big house and a fast car you're right in i don't know lewis was a was a kind generous person he you know he donated to charity he was always there for his friends and i remember i actually went through the process and i actually wrote one for myself and i looked back at it and it was this really cool moment where i was like okay that's the actual kind of person I want to be and i I think that's a really powerful tool for sort of building a role model kind of of yourself
1: yeah i love that that's really good i think that's it we need to have something to aspire to a a way of having direction Uh, and i think thinking about yeah the characteristics that we admire in others and creating some kind of example of what how we want to live is is very helpful Um, the stoics would do this there's the idea of the stoic sage which is this hypothetical uh, person who kind of like embodies the perfect like stoic like they're living the perfectly ultimate stoic existence and everything that happens they handle you know perfectly and obviously that's that's not realistic because you know no one is perfect but what we can do is we can have that as a concept and work towards it so i think exactly what you're saying creating that list of characteristics and qualities we want to develop in ourselves is really helpful also the ones we don't want to develop because Mm. i think that can help us to you know sometimes we need to know what we shouldn't be working towards i think it's good to have both
0: well on that thread of the negative principle six is negative visualization and so one of the biggest obstacles for me with stoicism has always been this sort of um negative or, or, or darker aspect to it or of facing these these harsh realities and so i wanted to just put a spin on this question how can we get the benefits of negative visualization without it drawing us into a, a sad or or almost depressive state
1: yeah so uh, this is an important concept in stoicism and i think that it really should come with a warning like i've actually put in there's a couple of the principles in in the book that i've put a warning because I think it's important to be aware of this, especially if you're in a not in a, a great space mentally. I think it's important to to think about these principles can be challenging. And it's not easy work, but they, they can be very powerful at the same time. So with negative visualisation, I think the key is really... I mean, the purpose is the Stoics would picture bad stuff happening for two reasons. So one, so they could prepare, uh, and two, so that they... Um, it wouldn't be as bad if it did happen. Uh, and also as another sort of side effect, there's a gratitude that comes from, uh, from knowing that things are temporary and that actually um, we should be grateful for what we have. Because it, when we when we picture things being taken away from us, I mean, the, the classic example of a negative visualization exercise is to contemplate losing family members and, and friends. and And that's difficult to do. That's really tough so that's why it needs a warning it needs a disclaimer to actually make sure you're in the right space to do this because it's not easy but if we do that if we contemplate that we can actually end up being incredibly grateful for those relationships and actually with the next time we spend time with that person we're like yes i need to be really present here because this isn't going to last forever Uh, and i think we forget that it's easy to just kind of take people for granted so by having this um this exercise in our minds and using it in the right way it can really bring uh, a richness to the relationships we have in our lives i mean i do this i've done this multiple times i do it all the time um and i've messed it up multiple times and i've definitely gone down that dark sort of um spiral and, and seen how it's easy for you to just get really down if you if you aren't careful so i think being careful with it it's obviously hard uh, but just knowing that you just play with it and you shouldn't hold on to it all the time it's not something to obsess over but it's more of an exercise it's like sit down contemplate that you know I do it with uh, my wife and my son and uh, I, I don't get drawn into it but I think about it and then afterwards I just go in, and it makes me feel more present with with them and it, it helps me to ensure that that relationship is is being you know it's, uh, I'm really grateful for that for those relationships so it's a it's a tricky exercise it's definitely one of the more advanced ones that the stoics would do but it can be very profound and it can really help with gratitude as well
0: well i want to skip forward and then skip back on a principle because whilst we're dealing with the negative i want to get this next one out the way um <laughs> so principle nine um, memento mori my least favorite of all the stoic um <coughs> of all the stoic teachings because for someone like myself with who's dealt with health anxiety and gone to therapy over health anxiety this has always been something I I've struggled with a concept I've always struggled with um and I remember speaking to I'm sure you may be familiar with the work of Donald Robertson he wrote the book How to Think mm-hmm. Like a Roman Emperor and he was talking to me about this and he said it's almost a thing that comes with age and experience, and the more that you face it, the 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 more at peace with, with these things you'll be. So this idea of meditating on your mortality, do you personally find it difficult, and what would you say to people that think that that's just a negative or cynical way to look at
1: life? So, yes, I do find it difficult, but I do think that it has a lot of value. And I think with time, the way that I think about it has changed. Um, I still think it's, it's difficult, but I definitely think that it's, it's a really interesting thought experiment because it can help you ensure that you're living with purpose. And again, it's this gratitude thing. A lot of this all comes back to really like, boosting gratitude. And I think spending time thinking about your mortality can help you to make sure that you are doing things that are important to you in your life and that you are really pushing for the goals that you want to achieve and that you are stopping to (laughs) smell the roses. And you know, you know what I mean? That's a a bad example, but you get what I mean? Like being Mm -hmm. present, being able to go and appreciate uh, your time on this planet because the, the finite nature of existence can actually mean that there's so much value in what we go through and it's it's a really hard concept again i think the disclaimer is a a big thing there just being aware of it um but i think yeah it's a powerful tool and i think it's that gratitude thing uh just feeling feeling very grateful uh for for being alive
0: yeah it's uh Certainly, a tough one. I think, and some people take it to to different extents. I think for me, maybe the extent I can take it to is just a, maybe a conversation with a friend. But I know I, I have a friend who's got a a calendar on or a poster on his wall, um, "Your Life in Weeks," and he crosses them off every Monday. And I, <laughs> for me, maybe that's a bit too far. But I think everyone's got their everyone's got their own level to to maybe how far they can take that principle.
1: Yeah, I think so as well. But I think it's something to to explore in your own way, and you, you know, you don't have to be obsessing over it. That's really not the the desired sort of approach. I think it, it's more about having an awareness of it and using it because it's a powerful force and it's something we all have to face. So I think having it, at, taking it, and trying to frame it in a different way and using it as a as a way to ensure we live good lives uh that's that's a a nice way of of framing it and i think it can help us to yeah ensure that all the things we do and our relationships are are rich and that we're uh that you know that we behave in a certain way because we 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 don't know when it will end so i think it's this is the stoics talk about this all the time you don't know when it's going to end so make sure that you're behaving now and you're acting as if it could end at any minute you don't want this to be the last you know you you want to be behaving well and you want to be trying to aspire to live a good life at all at all times really
0: yeah and maybe i experienced sort of the 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 benefits of it almost even last night um so i find that when i'm it it comes to me in moments where i'm really enjoying things um a bit of a confession here so i'm I'm a big my 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 genre of music is is metal music is rock music I've been you know i years and years I'd go to download festival all these rock festivals, but I have a few guilty pleasures um in music uh so last night I went to see Ronan Keating live um Ronan Keating from Boyzone, if if anyone's familiar um and I remember I was in the concert and i was I was just enjoying it and and, and that's when it came to me and I was just I was just became like really present. I was watching. I was just like, make sure you, you take in this moment while while you're enjoying it, um and then I get this almost—I don't know how to describe it. This almost it feels like a blanket that sort of comes over me of just acceptance or or, or or calm, and and I and I feel at peace. Do you do you have a similar experience where the benefits of of memento mori come to you in in maybe these like really happy times and you and it it helps you to be grateful in that moment
1: i think probably not so much with memento mori but i think like from meditation and some of the just sitting with my mind and Mm. that kind of being open i'm very interested in a lot of eastern philosophy and meditation is something i write about this as well in the book it's something that is important to me and i think it's something that can benefit a lot of people but i find that that openness and just trying not to overanalyze what we're going through all the time mm-hmm. um and just sort of being present um yeah i guess i guess for me it's more of a that something that i'm aware of if i'm doing something that i'm really enjoying mm-hmm. and just kind of caught up in the moment it's just trying to take a step back and and just appreciate it Uh, so yeah that's probably the way that i see it
0: so we skip forward one let's skip back one um principle seven managing strong emotions on face value maybe the hardest stoic principle would you agree
1: i would say yes because it's ongoing isn't it it's really hard to be in control of uh, uh the stoics call them passions um these like these emotions that can just take us all over the place so yeah they've got lots of great tips for dealing with it but again this is all you know it's, it's hard you, you've got to do the work to be able to put it into practice and manage the those strong emotions
0: so in relating it back to you um what strong emotions have of you really had to to
1: work at managing so i think the first and the the kind of the one that really is something that i've struggled with is fear um because that kind of ties in with anxiety a lot so that's been a a real tough emotion because i can see where what that can do to you it can just completely change everything it's very physical as well um a lot of these emotions you think you know you wouldn't automatically assume that it's going to have a physical impact on you but it can it can make you like, it can just completely change everything. You can be shaking. Uh, there can be physical illnesses off the back of emotions and and fear. I mean, just think about, you know, doing something terrifying. I mean, I always use the example of jumping out of a plane because a lot of people would be like, oh my God, that sounds horrific. Because you can imagine how physical that would be within your body. Um, so yeah, f- like fear is something that I find fascinating as an emotion um, because it's it's so powerful. I mean a lot of them are powerful. Anger as well is something that's that's uh it can be very very powerful and the stoics talk a lot about that. So I think it's just yeah being able to apply philosophy to these. Um again beautiful on paper but when you have to do it when when something's really annoyed you and you can feel that anger just rising up like how do you manage that? Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, that that's uh yeah, it's something to, to at least try and yeah. uh do something about it. I think it was I'm not
0: sure if it was Seneca maybe I, I I picked it up from, but this idea of um when you're angry or feeling confrontational to so the best remedy to that is to sort of remove yourself from that situation and, and give it time and this is something I only started practising maybe two years ago and and now when i'm in a situation where i really want to react to something in anger i always think myself right let me just remove myself a step back let's take 10 minutes away and if we come back and we still want to do that then maybe we act on it but let's give it 10 minutes first and and that's the way i I, i'll manage an emotion like that and it it makes me think but to me that works and i always think well why didn't why didn't anyone teach me these, these things in school? Like I think back to school and I think of, of, of the things I was taught that, that, that I never use now and is these principles that actually help you live a, your life in day to day that is so powerful. Do you think that philosophy in general should be taught to us at a younger age than maybe a degree level?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, and also it's one of those subjects that's kind of on the side, isn't it? Mm. Um, but it's, it's something that's really the spine of everything we do. Uh, because whatever we encounter, there are, you know, we're going to face challenges. And I think philosophy can help us to have the right attitude to, to deal with them. And yeah, just like managing emotions is a really, I mean, they say it's basic, but it's, it's a fundamental thing that we should all really be aware of and, and have some, tips to to actually use and yeah the the stoics had loads of things and what you just said was the perfect example just like not engaging in um in things before they become a fire like you see something's happened like just give yourself a time out that's something that the stoics applied for all emotions uh before they kind of overtake you and then kind of possess you and you end up doing things you regret but yeah being taught that in school would be incredibly helpful but (laughs) it's just something that you know they would uh rather teach you, you know, about the sort of farms in southern Italy or something. It's like just just teach me how to like handle my powerful emotions, please. <laughs> uh, I think it would yeah, I think it would be really important and, and would be very beneficial to a lot of people.
0: I just realized I actually skipped over two uh principles. So there was the strong emotions is also dealing with others, which is interesting to me because if it's a stoic philosophy I would think this is an ever increasingly complex principle in the age of social media. So how has this principle morphed since the days of the original Stoics? And do the old tactics still apply to us now in the world we live in today with all this new wave of, of other people invading our personal space, even when we're at home?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think, I think the, the philosophy that the ideas that they suggest is sound and it applies definitely to, to the modern times, because yeah, we've, we I guess now it's difficult because we we have this sort of unfiltered access to millions of people's thoughts. I mean, you go on Twitter and your your brain starts to hurt because it's just so many opinions and so many people feel that they can behave and say things. Like people are quite vile online sometimes. So I think it's you know the Stoics say that people will be challenging. They say, first, the first thing you need to remember is that there are going to be people like that out there that are difficult and that are going to clash with you. So you've got to remember that first thing, set yourself up, right? Don't pretend that you're never going to encounter people who are difficult. Mm-hmm. So we can just see that online. You just go online. You know, there's going to be people that are difficult. And that's OK, because, you know, then the next step is to so we accept that we're going to meet difficult people and then we flip it around and we 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 turn it into a challenge Uh, and it's how do we deal with that we don't have to again it's anti-role model kind of vibes from earlier but we don't have to emulate their behavior and we can treat it as a a test of our character one of the key themes in stoicism is building a a, like a good character this is like one of the main purposes to have a, a good character how do you deal with whatever happens to you and you know they feel that character is so important so when you encounter difficult people flip it back and see like how do i handle this how do i manage this as best as i can um and that really does change it and you just i think it's that acceptance we get so i, th- I think when we have unrealistic expectations of the world that's when we get frustrated Is something seneca talks about a lot we think the world should be a certain way but it isn't always going to be how we think it is and and things can be difficult so i think it's accepting that and also then turning it into how do we frame it how do we deal with those difficult people uh, because yeah we're going to find them and yes they seem to be everywhere you t- open your phone and it's like ah they're in your face so yeah i think yeah just just be aware of it they're going to be there but we can you know we can reframe it and it's about how we deal with it
0: so the 10th and and final principle um my favorite something i use a lot the the cosmic perspective and it made me think of one of my favorite quotes, T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And this cosmic perspective idea, something I use um, a lot, even before I I really hadn't come across until I picked up your book, but it's something that I've always used. So for the last couple of years, whenever I've had a, maybe a job interview or um an important meeting or um i remember I, when i was working in a gym as a personal trainer the first time i taught uh, a fitness class i was ter- terribly nervous and i took myself into the change room and i pulled up this video on youtube and it's one of those videos where it's focused on a house and then it just zooms out and out and then you see the world and then all the galaxies in the universe, and it just keeps going out. It's like a five minute video. But it really puts it into perspective, just how small we are in the the context of the universe. And not to say that should make you feel small and, and not powerful, but it really put my anxieties into perspective. And I remember watching that video and thinking, okay, so if we're that small inside a universe that big, then I'm pretty sure I can just go and teach this spin class. Do you know what I mean? So that's something I've always unknowingly used. So what is your experience like with this cosmic perspective, and and how why and how is it so powerful to you?
1: Yeah, so I love this idea, and that's exactly what you were saying about zooming out. So this is this is something that the Stoics have an exercise. It's basically that the view from above, and you just zoom out, and it gives you this sense of yeah, the problem I'm facing right now is actually, in the scheme of things, it's very small. So for me, I find that this idea, essentially this idea of impermanence as well, you know, the thing that we're experiencing, this difficult moment is, again, it's finite and it's impermanent, it will change. And that's incredibly practical. And I think just thinking about time, either side, you know, the time that's come before us and the time that's ahead of us, this sort of, vastness of of time and the vastness of space making that problem or that issue that you're dealing with will feel a lot smaller uh, especially when it's something that's that is actually quite small Like i'll give you a practical example like the dentist right when you have to go and have your teeth drilled or you, like something like that it's a very like you can feel very afraid but it's um it is temporary it's a short experience you know you're in and out within an hour or so um I'm using this example I recently went to the dentist, and it's like the thought of the thought of it is often worse than the reality but it's all about what's going on in your head but I found that the last time I just focused on the impermanence of it and actually like this is going to change in the scheme of things it's very small and I found that that did actually really help me uh, and it's something that I use all the time with exercise as well if you're like dying on a run and it's really hard and you're really just you know on the ropes I find again focusing on this impermanence uh, can be incredibly powerful, and you know traffic jams or whatever queues anywhere. It's it's just remembering that, just kind of zooming out and thinking, okay, you know, in the scheme of things, you know, even if it's a bad, (laughs) really bad queue or a bad traffic jam, okay, it's a few hours like few hours in in what you know. So it's uh, (laughs) yeah, I find it helpful.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting and it's almost it's a book recommendation I, i'd want to give you i just got to make sure i get the name right there it is okay so it's called beneath the night um by dr Stuart clark uh, he's an astrophysicist um i've actually interviewed him before but again he talks it's 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 a look at the night sky um and the vastness of the of the universe and, and sort of how we can how what we can take from that um in a personal development and reflective sense um in numerous ways so one thing i took from that is that sometimes i'll go out and i'll look up at the stars and i'll think of all these great people from from times gone by so all the greats and you look up in the sky and you think you know these are the the same constellations that william shakespeare would have seen if he looked up into the sky and it's almost this powerful way to connect you to all these these great people and and give you perspective so I really love this idea of uh, this this sort of cosmic perspective. So that's one I would recommend to you is uh, "Beneath the Night" by Doctor Stuart Clark.
1: No, it sounds it sounds amazing. Yeah, something that I really like the yeah the idea of that just contemplating the the vastness of everything and just making your mind just kind of boggle. You know, yeah. <laughs> mind boggling kind of ideas. I think that's quite you can have fun with that and it can get you out of your head as well.
0: Yeah, and if anyone wants a good one, um, I mentioned to you earlier, I recently spoke to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I tried to get him to explain time dilation to me. Um, so this idea of, of the faster you travel, the slower time actually is for you. So if you were to jet off on a rocket and come back, then your time would have existed at a slower rate to my time and you would have aged. I couldn't get my head around it. So if anyone wants a mind boggling one, go and look up time dilation. Um, So yeah, on that, I give you a book recommendation there. Something I I remember you, you put in your, your last book. Um, I can't remember if you did in this book, you, it was like a further reading or, or book recommendation. So what new book recommendations
1: aside from your new book may you have for us? so i mean other than the stoic classics you know you've got your marcus aurelius meditations epictetus's discourses and selected writings and seneca's letters from a stoic Uh, those are the three stoic books that i always recommend to everyone Um, but things that i've been interested in recently are the art of resilience by ross edgley is an amazing book Uh, he was the first person to swim around the whole of great britain His story is absolutely wild. It's a brilliant book. It's kind of an adventure book, but he's also heavily influenced by the Stoics. Uh, He uses Stoic philosophy to help him complete the swim. So there's a little bit of philosophy there and this amazing adventure journey. So that's great. Highly recommend that. Uh, The other book this year, probably my favorite book of the year so far, is Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And that's about i guess our relationship with and not entirely with tech but just with just modern life and how it's so hard for us to pay attention and all the factors that contribute to that and i guess for me the the at the beginning there's a huge chunk on tech and what it's doing to us and i found that just mind-blowing uh and really interesting something that i want to get into more um it actually made me Put my phone away for four days um which was just like i didn't didn't go on it for a very long time and that was yeah amazing i was in norfolk in this little uh cottage and just didn't didn't use the internet or the phone for that long and it was uh it was amazing it was so good and i think when a book can inspire you to take action uh that's that's something that's really i like that taking something away and actually you know using the ideas so yeah, our relationship with tech is fascinating. So yeah, that's that's something I recommend highly. That book. Stolen focus.
0: Yeah, I, I just realised I was actually supposed to interview you on Harry it fell through. So I have to pick back up on that thread. You yeah. just reminded me. Um, but yeah, that that um, that idea of tech. I don't know if you've ever seen. Have you seen the Social Dilemma on Netflix? Mm. The documentary. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Again, yeah. that had a similar effect on me. Person, um, it's, it's really hard thing to do, again, a theme we've been talking about this entire conversation. I find I find it hard, especially when you you're in something like, you know, yourself, you're you're an author, you you must network with different people. There's opportunities that come your way electronically. It's almost impossible to stay away indefinitely. And sometimes all it takes is that little oh, I'll check my emails and then suddenly your phone will feed you a piece of content that drags you onto an app, and then your attention's gone for thirty minutes. Um, do you have any sort of tactics or, or or limits or rules that you place on yourself when it comes to technology?
1: I I like to try and be completely off the phone, no screens after nine at night. Wrong. Um, but it doesn't always happen to be honest and again it's this thing this comes in waves like i'll I'll be quite disciplined with it and then i'll fall off the horse i have to get back on the horse Uh, so that's something that i think is is really important and i try and yeah it's it's how you use social media and it comes in waves so i i think it's like with everyone you get frustrated you can't you can't help yourself almost you get into this cycle where you realize you're conscious like yeah i'm probably on twitter too much at the moment And then you're like, okay, I'm going to just stop. And then then you kind of, it's this wave thing. So I think the first step towards changing anything is being aware of it, but also being aware of how powerful that force is that you're trying to fight against. And this is one of the things I loved so much about uh, Stolen Focus is he talks about how it's, you know, we're often, you know, we blame ourselves that we're, you know, we're so bad with tech, but really it's we're fighting a battle against um thousands of people who've designed the interface of whatever app we're using and behavioral psychologists all these different people have contributed to make the most addictive uh possible thing that that will keep us hooked and there's things that like they talk about in the book about the guy who created the infinite scroll Mm. and just realized that he's just like thousands and thousands of hours have just been like cut from you know human productivity just because i don't know how they did that in the book he talks about like how you you can calculate how much you know there's like an extra percentage amount of time people will spend on an app because of infinite scroll because there's no like before we used to have to click next when you Mm -hmm. got to the end of a, a page but infinite scroll just meant that people would stay on their phones for x amount of time longer so i think yeah it's just being aware that this force that we're trying to you know push back against is (laughs) savage and we just have to be kind to ourselves and know that it's hard but also to not give up the the fight and try and carve out discipline and that again coming back to philosophy one of the the cardinal virtues in stoicism is like temperance and like self-control and it's something that you know they would try and live by so i think it's something that we can all emulate trying to find some control especially with tech it's such a great way to test that out mm.
0: yeah the infinite scroll is is uh, a kill i had to I, I i downloaded TikTok at one point and i used it for a couple of days and i had to delete it because again that's that infinite scroll i remember i had to lie the lying in bed and i'd say right you've got 10 videos left and then you get the 10th and you just maybe scroll down a little further see what's next yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. impossible but um yeah love that so no screens after nine. It's now eight. It's nine minutes past eight. So you've got 51 minutes of screen time left. So I won't keep keep you any longer. Um, my last question, um, I must have asked you it probably the twice before, but I'll ask you again. For Ben Aldridge right now, what makes life worth living?
1: What makes life worth living? Well, obviously, family uh, is at the moment. Well, not at the moment, family. Family, friends, like the connections that you have with other human beings. Uh, for me that's that's my number one. Uh, and then I think connecting just with ideas as well, that's something that I love. I love reading about philosophy. I love reading about not just philosophy, but everything. like I just have an interest in learning. So I think ideas and people, the two things that uh, help us to live a happy life.
0: Amazing. So we've talked a lot about it today, this book, How to Control the Uncontrollable. 10 Game-Changing Ideas to Help You Think Like a Stoic and Build a Resilient Life. Let everyone know if they're interested where they can find the book, where they can find you and best connect with you.
1: Uh, Yeah, so the best place to connect with me is my website, which is benaldridge.com. And there's links to the books that I've written and the cards and my mailing list, which has like a book club and whatnot, and links to social media and all that jazz so i think that's probably the best place to come and you'll see pictures of me doing ridiculous things and not so ridiculous things and yeah so it's a, i think that's a good hub uh, so i'd recommend that
0: amazing i'll make sure that's linked in the description below um yeah thank you so much again man it's been an absolute pleasure i better hope i may have to extend my screen time tonight because this episode's going out <laughs> tomorrow and i've got a bit of editing to do um but no it's, it's been an absolute pleasure once again uh third time on the show i hope there'd be many more uh one of my favorite authors and such a nice guy so thank you so much for joining me again man
1: oh thank you it's been an honor to be here i always love coming and chatting to you and uh, yeah, i really appreciate it and thank you so much for all the support